Coming up next, the booketing reads of Mice and Men. My name is Nathan Alverson. I'm your humble obedient host. We've got Brandon over there. Just came from a long day of teaching, did you not? I did. Brandon's been subbing over at the the old Christian school that we have in town here. I have been. I have now read the first two scenes of uh, Romeo and Juliet like five times. Oh, awesome. For multiple classes? Yeah. It's good. First two scenes? Yeah. In fair Verona, Verona, where we take our stand or something like that? Do you bite your thumb at me, sir? There'll be no thumb biting. This is a. This is if, I, a if I bite my thumb at you, if I say I bite my thumb at him, is it is it breaking the law? It is somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, I do not bite my thumb at you, sir. I only bite my thumb. <laughs> but I do bite my thumb, yeah. sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those merry punsters and yeah, and and the old Shakespeare. Why don't you introduce our other person, Brandon? Right, he is the pastor who is a master of reading, the Beastmaster Funky Town. Beastmaster Funky Town, of course. Jake Menzel. Yep. Sup, y'all. And we are going to talk about of mice and men. Oh, Jake, which do you prefer, mice or men? Men. We had a mouse in our house this morning. It's, turns out, what happened to it? It got away. Apparently, it got I away. Was, I was not home. I'm not sure I would have been able to catch it if it were. It, it's going to die. When the I mice, when the cat is away, the mice will play. Yeah, you're the so, cat in this scenario. I I realized that. Yeah. Did your wife stand on a chair in the middle of the kitchen and hold her skirts up like a cartoon character? No, she didn't have any skirts to hold up. She did scream, I'm told. She was shocked and surprised. My three-year-old son did stand up on a chair and scream and cry. And if he had skirts, he might have held them up. There you go. No elephants and in your my house. my daughter, my five-year-old daughter, ran upstairs crying to her room. And my six-year-old son got really excited and was like thinking he was going to get to chase and catch a mouse or kill a mouse. That's pretty awesome. That sounds like fun. Sounds like a fun day. We had a whole family of mice in our house once under our dishwasher and our cat just sat by the dishwasher and one by one killed all the little babies as they ran out. <laughs> so, How did your children and such enjoy that spectacle? Uh, they were horrified. <laughs> my older children thought it was fine. My boys, my girls didn't like it so much. My wife didn't like it so much. I was proud of the cat. (laughs) Good job, cat. The cat did its job. Yeah. There's only one good reason to ever own a cat, and that's the reason. So if you can't be cool with the cat catching mice and toying with baby mice. That's why this cat has become my favorite pet. He requires no affection. He acknowledges my existence. I acknowledge his. I feed him. And otherwise, he catches mice in my house, and I give him room and board. So he's exactly (laughs) like one of your children. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Check, check, and check. Wow. (laughs) But yes, uh, I'm just he's kidding. an indentured servant. He's he's yes. he's a paid employee. A paid employee. Send them to the torture chamber when they're done, if they're bad or naughty. Mm-hmm. Cat? Are we talking about mice, cats, or children now? Children and the cat. The cat's never bad, right? Really? Not really. Yeah, That's good. He scratches some things occasionally. We have to spray him. His favorite thing to do um, is we have these beams in our house. It makes it kind of look like a cottage, and one of the beams goes right by the door that leads into the house. Mm-hmm. He likes to get and perch right up next on the beam above the door and just watch his people come in. 
I'm convinced one day he's gonna like leap on somebody's head. And I have my hopes about who it might be, but What's <laughs> 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 that sound? Who I guess an airplane. No. Nope. False. Six I'm shooters. Getting out my guns here. Yeah, the six shooters of the contextual Texan with a hail and hearty. Yeehaw! And I just realized what Jake's been doing for us. What? Maybe unintentionally. Transitioning mice and men of mice and men. He, he transitions us from mice to men. No, but he's been talking about mouse, mice. Yeah, the mouse in my house. Yeah. yeah, he he actually set me up for that. You may have missed that part. I where did he asked me that. if I prefer mice or men, and then oh, I started talking about no. the mouse in my house. Yeah, that the reason just, this whole I was just came up is I completely just have I phase out this first part <laughs> of the show. Sorry, like so many of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brandon, you're the contextual text, and you provide some much needed context for this work and your from texas yeah and you are about to do that now so take it away mice and men by old johnny s how long it's been three seasons now since we talked about steinbeck yeah i guess so i mean steinbeck was the second book we ever did right yep yeah east of eden so that would have been old school yeah this is old school booking yeah Probably um, the context did not take the entire episode, as I anticipate this one shall. Yeah, so we're going to try to make this last the whole episode. Is that what we're going to do now? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, right. it's up to you, Brandon. It's your time, whatever you want right. to do with it. Um, well, it's a good time as any to review who Steinbeck was, and I'm sure you could jump in and help some here, because you are a Steinbeck fan. I am a Steinbeck fan. Right. And well, so, am I a Steinbeck fan? I'm an East of Eden fan. That's an interesting question. I guess we'll cover that. I'm looking right now. Sorry, I've got just notes. You can apparently go to the Steinbeck House Restaurant and Gift Shop in Salinas, California, if you want to. Salinas Valley is where East of Eden took place, right? Yeah. I guess there might be some irony there. You can go and actually go to a restaurant where he... I don't know. I wonder what's on the menu. All right. Let's see. This is fun. This is what people tune in for this for. We get we give them weird little things like this. Here's what it says. John Beck, John Steinbeck's birthplace and boyhood home. So we're starting our bio. That's how we usually start these things. He was born in... Salinas. So it's a restored Queen Anne style Victorian house uh, built in 1897. They don't say house. They just leave that implied. The Steinbeck family purchased the home in 1900 and raised their family there. It was purchased by the Valley Guild in 1973. It is now a charming restaurant serving lunch Tuesday through Saturday, located two blocks west of the National Steinbeck Center. So apparently you can go and study at the Steinbeck Center. Where is their menu? Here it is. Featured menu items. It is not loading for me. I can tell you that they have lemon bunk cake. That's good. Chicken apple brie and chicken bundles. Oh, here we go. Sandwiches are available every day. You can get a chicken cranberry. I thought these would be like fun Steinbeck themed. Yeah, like the grape. You can get a Reuben. Juice of wrath and... Asparagus timbale, whatever that is. Shrimp or chicken Caesar salad. Zucchini lasagna. Okay, this is boring. Sorry. Nobody wants to hear this. We went on a little rabbit trail. Just like and it proved to be fruitless. Just, just but like still. The interstitial chapters and Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. Okay. So as we said, he was born early 1900s in Salinas, California. He was of German descent, mainly. But that puts him squarely in what we would call the modernist period of literature. And we can talk more about that in a minute. But he would have been writing like, uh, of mice and men, it was published in the early 1930s. 1932. So some of the contemporaries would have been, Hemingway would have been a contemporary. T.S. Eliot would have been in the height of his career at that point as well. James Joyce would have also been writing right in the same time. And so those were, this was like the highlight, the high time of pretentious modernist literature. And Hmm. that's when Steinbeck is writing. And so his father was treasurer and his mother was a former school teacher. And apparently he grew up as a member of the Episcopal Church. 
though as if anyone remembers from east of eden that wouldn't last he would apostatize or i'm not even sure he would say he would apostatize his family wasn't even that necessarily religious but he did have a religious background i'm not sure that's as quite as important for of mice and men as it is for east of eden mm-hmm. i mean the religious overtones yeah. to east of eden were definitely there yes but of mice and men i wouldn't think that it's not quite as essential to that book i mean, I mean have either east of, you read of eden it is called east of eden have either of you finished Advice and Men? Have you read it again yet? Yeah. I've not. Actually. I haven't read it again yet. I so have. I can't remember if it has any of those religious overtones. Not really, no. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as far as his other books go, and even I guess for the, this one, it's important to know that as a youth, he, would, he spent a lot of time working on ranches and stuff, especially with migrant workers. And so he became very familiar with their lifestyle. As I think one thing I read, he worked at somewhere called the Spreckle Sugar Company. And he got to, he became familiar with the lifestyle that would especially be essential like Grapes of Wrath and of Mice and Men to an extent as well. So during this period, though, he was already writing. He would find time while he was working to find to go off into labs or other quiet places and write. And so he would go to university at Stanford University for a while, but he left without a degree like many writers did during that period. It would be an interesting thing to tally up. How many, many of them had degrees versus didn't? I think that a good majority that we've talked about never finished their degree. That's interesting. Does that seem right? I'm having trouble coming up with one that definitely that seems, did. That seems pretty, that seems pretty common Flannery to me. Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, she had her yeah. BA. But and after that, he kind of had an itinerant lifestyle. He went to New York City, had some odd jobs, and kept wanting to be a writer. And eventually he would become published. And then he would have this weird itinerant lifestyle even after that. He would go back. He would have times of up and down, great up and down. He would be extraordinarily wealthy at periods, be extraordinarily poor at periods. He would be married at periods. He would commit adultery and then be unmarried at periods. In other words, he wasn't the greatest man. He was kind of irresponsible, like a lot of the guys at that time, um, Fitzgerald, Hemingway. It was just in the air they breathed. He was an ir- irresponsible with his money. He was irresponsible with his relationships. And I don't know if we really need to go into more detail than that about just the generalities of his life. Just that's the broad strokes of who he was. And he went through a lot of relationships with women, right? Yeah, a lot of relationships. And also he was famously a drunkard, mm-hmm. and which is another important aspect of who he was as well. I suppose you could categorize him with the authors who would look you would look at as a tortured individual like Fitzgerald. But really, it's interesting with those guys at the period to think – were they really that way or did they just want to present themselves that way because that's how artists were meant to be? Right. Because you have, before that, authors who could have completely normal lives or find out more and more about Dickens and it doesn't look that great. But still, they weren't the generic American tortured drunk writer who never could hold down a job or have stable income or have a stable family. And yet here we have Fitzgerald and here we have Hemingway, here we have Steinbeck, and they're all right in the 1920s and 30s. So it's just um, an interesting phenomenon. You have to ask yourself, was that because that's the kind of person that can actually write stories like that, or did they just try to perform the life of a writer? Right. And there are things to make you think that because at the time, the news was becoming more and more visual, media-centered, celebrity lifestyle was becoming more important. People were actually, they felt like they were being looked at and watched. As far as Steinbeck's writing career, it would really get started with in 1935 with... Do you know how big of a Steinbeck nerd are you? I'm going to really press the fact that you're a Steinbeck nerd so that everybody thinks you are. (laughs) (laughs) Tortilla Flat. And that was his first big critical success. Uh, It won a couple awards. And then finally, he would write his 
famous Dust Bowl or California novels, which this one would be among those, you would have Indubious Battle of Mice and Men and also The Grapes of Wrath, which would all kind of seal him as this great American writer. He would go off and write some for Hollywood as well. And I mean, other than having sort of the generic ups and downs, like I said, there's not a whole lot more to be said about his career. But he really codifies and becomes famous in the 1900s, or 1930s. Um, Leif, it's just about every modernist author or first half of the 20th century trope that you could possibly name. Yeah. If people just want to kind of know, let me see, I had a list here of, so Tortilla Flat was 1935, Of Mice and Men would have been 1937, so that would have been after he had already taken off with his career. Grapes of Wrath would have been 1939, and East of Eden, my favorite Steinbeck novel, was much later in 1952. Right. An interesting aspect of Steinbeck is the fact that he did, in 1962, get the Nobel Prize for Literature. I mean, so in the end, we could go through all the ups and downs of Steinbeck. I mean, I've got them down right here on my note, my Word document, but really, do we want to talk about all the ups and downs of Steinbeck's life? It, in general, he had the ups and downs. He had financial crashes. It sounds like a 1920s disease. Yeah. The ups and downs. <laughs> yeah. And so that's just, he <laughs> was like, like I said, he ge- he generally fits that mold. And I, I find it just fascinating that you have those guys, the outlier, and I don't know if we'll ever get to do him because he never wrote any fiction was T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. He could have been those guys and kind of was, and then he was converted. And um, I think his conversion possibly is legitimate. I think I'll, I've said this before. I'll say it again. We should do T.S. Eliot sometime. Maybe we could do one of his plays or something like yeah, that. Just that's right. We could do role. Death Comes. Yeah, Death Comes to the Archbishop yeah. or uh, Murder in the Cathedral. Is that Murder it? on the Orient Express. Yeah. Murder on the Orient Express, my yeah. favorite T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Or when the Cats movie comes out starring Taylor Swift. Of course, we'll all be there opening day. So we could do an episode about that. Yeah. How early are you guys getting there tomorrow? At least 8.30, I think. Yeah, I think we're going to get there at 8.30 too. Anyways, that was... Yeah, Amanda... Uh, got the babysitter for nine, and I told her that was not going to work. So I'll see you there at eight thirty. We'll try to be there at eight thirty. Yeah, we'll try to be there at eight thirty or shortly thereafter, if you can. Uh, yeah, we'll hold you a line. If the more, more of us that are there at the same time, it's easier to hold space. The less, and the less annoying it is for everyone else if yeah. two more people jump in. So we'll be there at eight thirty. We'll yeah. see you there. Okay. Anyways, we're talking about in-game people. Mm-hmm. Um, more exciting than Steinbeck right yep. now. <laughs> it sure I, is. I came awake. <laughs> I'm just going to leave this in. I think it's fun to have a little historical marker for when yeah. this was recorded. It's Avengers Endgame comes out tomorrow. We couldn't be more excited. So historical marker then. Speaking of historical markers, yep. Nathan. Perfect transition. We've got in 1962, a controversial decision is made by the Nobel. I just did a passive construction. I'm thinking like a teacher now. That's awful, Brandon, but I'm just going to keep it. The Nobel laureates, they made an awful decision. They decided to have Steinbeck win the Nobel Prize for Literature. A decision was made by the Nobel, lo- yeah, Nobel yeah, yeah. laureates. Committing to it. Right. It's a great sentence. It's not, but who cares? Hemingway would have hated that sentence, and Hemingway right. was who a lot of people thought deserved the award. That sentence would, I think, in Brandon's speak, that sentence would have been hated by Hemingway. That sentence would have, yes, this is my speech. I'm, I'm a passive construction guy. Yeah, you're Wait, you're I don't want to be known as the passive guy. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. People, it's like the Dylan, the Bob Dylan decision that came out recently. Mm-hmm. People thought it was a compromise decision because no one else, they couldn't just choose anyone else. And the reason people didn't think Steinbeck deserved the award was that he was a populist author. He was probably the, a good way of thinking of Steinbeck would be like Dickens. He was a popular author who wrote to the people. Fun thing that I've, disc- I've been really noticing reading Romeo and Juliet so many times, mm-hmm. a lot of the incomprehensible stuff with Shakespeare, especially with students, is when Shakespeare's writing like lower class. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it's only because he's using like slang 
that we don't know anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it's been fun pointing out to the students, you guys all can understand pretty easily Romeo and you can understand the Montague and Capulets, but you can't understand the slang. That's because that's what it was. It was slang. So like the servant is incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Or like in Lear the Fool, who knows what in the world the fool ever said. Right. I don't think I understand any of his jokes. Right. <laughs> yep. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that's because it's all just slang. Anyway, that's that's been fun to see. The you, you, humor is generally not a universal quality. Yeah, and I also think it just Slang, goes back wor- to wordplay. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. If you've ever watched somebody explain all the different Eliz- Elizabethan pronunciations mm-hmm. and how things and the double meanings behind different words that are lost, and it's pretty amazing, actually, all that we don't. Yeah, yeah, and understand in a Shakespeare. Play. And I'll just how much Shakespeare just loved wordplay like that. Like mm-hmm. in the very f- the first four lines, he plays on the word coals, then collier, right? Collar and like a collar around your neck, and that's like. That elaborate little intricate wordplay that's going on the stu- it goes right over the students' heads, but yeah. it's still fun to see. It makes me love it even more. You know, I bet we could make a generalization that drama holds up better over time than comedy. Like, I, like you try watching a Simpsons episode from 20, 30 years ago. The show's been on 30 years now. It's like full of references to things that you don't remember. And the, most of the stuff I get because I grew up with it, but you go one more generation, they won't understand why people were laughing. Yeah. Anyway. There's my deep point for the day. But we can't talk about Romeo and Juliet. That's not the point. Nope. But I've been having fun with it. Yep. We're coming back to our Shakespeare, America's Shakespeare. We're going to try again. Every year we try Shakespeare again. I don't know why. It yep. never goes well. We're going to talk about Steinbeck, America's Shakespeare. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're talking about Steinbeck. Yeah, it does go well when we talk about Steinbeck. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I think so. America's Shakespeare. Can we call him that? <laughs> no. Sure. I don't think we can. I don't think he deserves the mantle. Who no. would be America's Shakespeare? Not Steinbeck, surely. No. I don't know if America's had a Shakespeare. So we have Steinbeck, we have the controversial decision, and that really helps open up to us the divide that was happening in the 1920s with literature. You had modernism with Hemingway and with T.S. Eliot and with uh, James Joyce, that group of people who would all go to France together, become the expatriates, depressed writers with Picasso and all those artists, and open up a new world of elitist art, art for the elite, art for those who are in the know, art for the intelligentsia. Art for the cold-hearted. Um, Hemingway is an interesting outlier because he was kind of of that group, kind of not of that group, because Hemingway can have a heart, right? as we found when we read for him the bell tolls. But still, they were all there trying to create the greatest art, especially with the tightness and cleanness of the language. They really cared about the craft of a sentence. And that sort of mentality would carry over into, future, into authors we've read, like um, E.B. White and stuff like that. That was a very influential way of looking at language to try and be very clean with your words and not have a word that doesn't matter in your sentence. Steinbeck was not of that school. <laughs> There's a lot of what you call purple prose. Mm-hmm. Not just you, other people call it as well. Right. <laughs> Can you come up with that phrase? Sorry, Nathan. <laughs> what I call Yeah, purple. what Nathan calls purple prose. I don't know why I'm shutting my notes. Kind of became a bookening <laughs> phrase for a while. We would say we there was a run of episodes where we were just saying the phrase purple prose every every week. Purple prose. Around the time when we did Bradbury probably. And that's been a divide with literature ever since. I mean, you have people who are very snobbish about their literary tastes who look down on things like Steinbeck or Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. Not everybody who dislikes Charles Dickens is snobbish. Some people like Charles Dickens because they aren't entertained by Charles Dickens. Because without doubt, Charles Dickens is full of purple prose too. Yep. What would be some of the other authors who would definitely fit that category that are still admired? Well, J.K. Rowling. Sure. But Steinbeck is... Arguably a better writer than she is. Yeah, I think so. Uh, let's see. Writers that are admired that overwrite. 
lot of Victorians probably in one way or another. But Dickens would be the main offender there. Yeah, so I think Steinbeck, the comparison between Steinbeck and Dickens is pretty fair. Mm -hmm. A lot of parts of the novel that just seem to ramble, especially if you ever read Grapes of Wrath. Like he has a whole chapter just on a turtle. Yeah, I hate that chapter. And he's like, what in the world is this here for? Mm -hmm. But he has it there and he purples it up Mm -hmm. with East of Eden, those strange in-between chapters where he's given the historical shifts for us. And these are similar to like what we would see with Dickens, arguably like the Esther Summerson portions in Bleak House, but still. Yeah. Let me set a scene for you. Yeah. And so, but that's the controversy then was because a lot of people see the Nobel Prize, this bastion of Swedish decision makers. Yes. They get to tell us what is the best literature in the world. They saw this as them kind of betraying the trust that was given to them because how dare they give it to someone who was such a populist writer. It would be probably actually maybe the better equivalent to Steinbeck would be Stephen King. Mm -hmm. It would be like the Nobel Prize going to Stephen King today, I think. And you just can't imagine that happening. People would be like, well, it should have gone to Cormac McCarthy instead or to Philip Roth or all these other writers. We have so many great American writers who actually are very careful about their style and very precise about their prose and very thoughtful about their symbolism in a more elegant way than Steinbeck ever was. Because you can't you can't disagree with the fact that Steinbeck is heavy-handed at many times. Yeah, I don't think for, for Stephen King, for J.K. Rowling, for Steinbeck, for really any of the people you've mentioned, it's a matter of them sucking. It's a matter of them being... It's just a, it really is a matter of control. Some authors simply allow themselves to go on and do not edit themselves precisely, and some authors do not. I mean, Stephen King even can hit heights of rhetorical eloquence that are quite beautiful, but he's not always inclined to somebody like Hemingway is going to take time to craft everything down to perfection. And some people do and some people don't. And you can argue about what the, what the proper approach is. Yeah. But without a doubt, modernism was the through, through, so there was a movement in like the late 1940s, 1950s and sixties called the new criticism in American, the, and it got started like in the university of Chicago, then moved over to Yale and all this with like Robert Penn Warren and these guys, T.S. Eliot was like an early new critic with his tradition and the individual talent, those essays. And what they really championed was the sort of art that T.S. Eliot produced, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, T.S. Eliot would have championed his own art, yeah. And so that got into the universities, and the universities being our version of like the intelligentsia, the, 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 the places where the people who are really smart and rich get to tell us what is good. Therefore, the universities for years now have shaped what we think is the best. And that it's not, that's not the complete picture, but that is part of what's happened. And so now everybody thinks that, and everybody who goes to university and wants to be of a certain brand thinks that, you know, you have to like Hart Crane. Ever heard of Hart Crane? Sure. Yeah, he's a bad poet. Mm-hmm. But everybody thinks you have to like Hart Crane. And you can't like, who's the guy that everybody hates today? Is it Billy Collins, right? Yeah. People think that Billy Collins is purple. Do you know that? Do people think Billy Collins is purple? Yeah, people. there are people who don't like Billy Collins. I kind of like Billy Collins. I don't know Billy Collins well. I mean, he's not he's not awful, but he's a poet that people look down on because he's not of the accepted class. And it really is kind of like what Tolstoy will write about with War and Peace, that it doesn't really have to do with quality. Mm-hmm. Really, in the end, it just has to do with, are you accepted into this class or not? You see the same thing happening with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Did that movie Tolkien ever come out? It's still coming out. It's been disavowed formally by... The, the Tolkien Estate. Tolkien Estate. Has it really? Those yeah. guys are so grumpy. True. Is it going to be bad then, I guess? 
people around here talk about how it's going to be bad. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was great. I wouldn't be surprised if it was terrible. I wouldn't be surprised if it was something in between. I just, I don't really trust the filmmakers. I also don't trust the Tolkien estate to be anything but a bunch of grumpy old grumps that like money. I mean, they did sell off their property to Amazon for a pretty sweet deal with Amazon not presenting any particularly compelling creative vision. So I have limited trust in the Tolkien estate, Brandon. I can tell. That's my hot take on it. Plus, Christopher Tolkien's just, I don't know. He's always seemed like somebody that trades on his father's legacy a little bit, releasing every napkin that Tolkien ever wrote as a hardcover. Not a fan. There we have it. Book The bookending's hot take on a Tolkien issue. Yep. I feel like I'm some sort of like sultan in the uh, jungle with my leaf over my head. <laughs> Brandon is sitting under a giant fake palm leaf in this children's room that we're recording in right t- today. Back to Steinbeck. Back to Steinbeck. What was I talking about? Uh, you were talking about... Billy Collins, Tastemakers. Robert Penwar and... Yeah, and so then you'll have... Here's a fun drinking game, booking drinking game. Take a drink every time Brandon manages to work a reference in to Robert Penn Warren. Wow. Do I do that a lot? I mean, they wouldn't get drunk if they took it, but they would have a drink almost every episode, it feels like sometimes. Huh. It's actually nice. a nice moderate drinking game. Yeah, there we go. Robert Penn Warren. Robert Penn Warren. Robert Penn Warren. Whoa, Brandon. Robert Penn Warren. Robert Penn Warren. <laughs> People are waiting. Robert Penn Warren. <laughs> no. Robert Penn Warren. No. Um, tastemakers. Yes. Universities. Yes. And so our universities really do have an influence over what we appreciate. And we also have these magazines and foundations like the Poetry Foundation. We have the New Yorker. These things, as they came into power as well, would help shape our tastes. And so for whatever reason, the New Yorker would side with Salinger over a guy like Steinbeck or something mm-hmm. like that. And that would make Salinger's career until he went off the rails and decided he needed to be one with the Buddhist god. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, so. There we go. That gets us back into the mood. That feels like the bookending mm-hmm. that I love. That's the, that's how he kind of fits into the stylistic debate and tension that's at the heart of kind of the American literary scene up to today, really. You have Harold Bloom who calls Stephen King a failure. Then you have everybody who buy, actually buys Stephen King's books, but doesn't buy like Don DeLillo, who Harold Bloom would champion. Right. Right. And almost nobody's heard of Philip Roth, except for like these art film directors who will go and make a movie out of a Philip Roth novel, but everybody's read J.K. Rowling. Sure. And so this is the great debate. And it's just intensified, I think, because of modernism. It was there beforehand. You kind of had it with the romantics, but it really became institutionalized with that romantic movement where they were going to make high art into an institution. And then somehow that got into like the MFA programs where like where Fernando O'Connor went with the Iowa Writers Workshop. And then that got into like magazines as well with like the Atlantic and then Kenyon Review and the New Yorker. And then today we have this whole institution of high art and I'm putting quotation marks around it. And it's fascinating to see how this stuff comes about and how it then shapes our way that we look at the world. Like talking to the students about Shakespeare, they all think that Shakespeare must have always been high art. And so I, we watched like the actual Globe performance of the, at the Remade Globe. So you can actually see the people's hands on the stage as they're kneeling and leaning on to watch this production on stage. And it, sh- it shocks them because they imagine going to see a Shakespeare play is like going to watch a symphony. Right. And it's just nothing like that. But we, iman- we have to imagine that Shakespeare can only be that way because we can only imagine New Yorker readers liking Shakespeare. And of course, New Yorker readers are going to sit around a quiet fire with their brandy. And so it's just interesting to think how all of our perceptions change like that. And so that's what Steinbeck had to deal with. And unfairly, I think, was presented as a bad choice for the Nobel Prize, so much so that 
he felt the tension and said that he was a bad choice for the Nobel Prize. Really? Yeah. He felt the insecurity of it. That's interesting. Yeah. And he was like, I don't know why I got it. Basically, I mean, you can go and um, I bet we can find even, I've never read it. It might be interesting to read his acceptance speech of the Nobel. Yeah. Uh, have you read it? I think I have maybe, but. You should look it up. I'll look it up. That might be a fun thing to do. Okay. Anyways, we've still got some more stuff to talk about, guys. I'm sorry. 1937. So we have Steinbeck's career began Salinas Valley, California, became famous in the 1930s, 1937 in the middle or kind of at the beginning of this very extremely, very extremely, (laughs) of this very successful career we have of Mice and Men. Now, of Mice and Men, I think is arguably, I I would say one of the top five most famous American novels. I mean, I can't think of and it's not really even a novel. It's in what you would call a novella. Mm-hmm. So the history of the novella, it's not really much of a history to it. It's just the novella's a useful form when someone wants to tell a story that's not quite novel length and it's not quite short story length. Probably the first novellas that we have, according to one site that I read, would be the uh, Decameron by Boccaccio. Listen, that's... But that's just kind of a series of little novellas oh, sure, right. pieced together. It's basically Italy's um, The Canterbury Tales. Right. I think there's later on a, an additional heaping of uh, sex, though. It's uh, I'm not sure I would recommend the Decameron for. No, I'm not saying people should go and read the Decameron. It's one of those golden patina things that we talk mm-hmm. about. Yeah, <laughs> don't go and read it just because it's old. Right. So really, the difference between a novella and a novel just it comes down to the breadth of the story. It's going to be a bit bigger than a short story can handle. So the one of the novellas we've read before is The Dead. Right. The Dead is a novella versus a short story. And so this fits more into the category of a novella. Um, I can give a list of some of the top novellas that appear on almost everybody's top 10 list. You want to hear them? Let's hear them. Animal Farm is a novella. Yep. Billy Budd would be considered a novella. Yay. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yay. A Christmas Carol. Yay. Ethan Frome. Yay. Heart of Darkness. Yay. I Am Legend. Yay. The Metamorphosis. Of mice and men, yay! The old man in the sea, yeah. We'll hold withhold judgment on that. Yeah, we can't say that one yet. Right. The stranger, la tranche. Oh, Camus. Yeah. Yeah. And the strange case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Mm, boo. So these are all novellas, and as I said, it it's going to deal with things that are more extensive than a short story. It really, it has to do with time, and it has to do with probably thematic unity as well. A short story is going to have more one theme that it's trying to get at. A good man is hard to find. The theme is this awful family is going to get killed by a serial killer. Right. Um, and of Mice and Men's a little more complicated than that. You have a few more balls that are getting juggled. More moving parts, yeah. More moving parts. That's a better way to say it. So it's a novella. It was written in 1937. It is The name comes from Robert Burns' poem To a Mouse. You ever read this before? Nope. That's probably not even worth reading the whole thing. But the famous line... Comes from... But mouse, you are not alone, and proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men go often askew, and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. That's the stanza that he's drawing from there. Is that where the phrase of the all best the... best laid plans of mice best and laid men... Plans yeah. of mice and men come from? Comes from this Robert... So if, I mean, if you guys don't know who Robert Burns is, he was a famous Scottish poet. Here's how it sounds in the Scottish. But mousey, thou art no thylen, and proving foresight may be vain... The best laid schemes on mice and men gang oft ugly and lay us naught but grief and pain for promised joy. We'll have to have our Scottish listeners rate that. Yeah. You want to try it in your Scottish accent? 
The best laid plans of mice and men. <laughs> Off and go astray. Off and go astray. Hi there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so that's what it's taken from. We can't. We don't have to go over the plot or anything. We'll be getting into that. We will be getting into that. Of mice and men, it was actually he first attempted to have this be a, like a novel play. He wanted it to be like a play novelette, and that's what one critic would actually call it because the play is it's kind of structured like a play. In three acts, right? Mm-hmm. If I remember right. Yeah. And that's, he originally titled it Something That Happened. That was going to be the title, it was just Something That Happened. But then he decided to go with the Burns poem after he decided that Something That Happened was a really bad title. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's just. Couldn't every story be called yeah. Something That Happened? It was extraordinarily successful. It met with positive reviews and it was chosen as the Book of the Month Club selection. There you go. And it was. Popular, but it also got a lot of good reviews from pretty serious critics. It was praised by the New Republic. It was praised by the New York Times. Most said it was a grand little book for all its ultimate melodrama, which is strange in this case, kind of. It made sense with, what did we just finish reading? Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye. With Catcher in the Rye, this makes sense. But apparently this is an extraordinarily censored book, too. Hmm. This is notorious. And so one of the things that it's been censored for, for promoting euthanasia, it's been censored for condoning racial slurs. It's been censored for being anti-business. It's been censored for containing profanity and having vulgar language. Most restrictions have now been lifted. But yeah, it was a very controversial book at, when it first was published, especially as far as high school reading lists go, huh. which is fascinating because a lot of the books that now seem fairly standard for high school reading started out as being extraordinarily controversial. And Catcher in the Rye is still pretty controversial. I mean, I would not teach that to high schoolers. But I, I would teach this book, I'm pretty sure, mm-hmm. to high schoolers without much problem. And yet, yeah. My favorite one, though, is the guy who said they censored it because it was anti-business. <laughs> so, which I guess would be the same reason Grapes of Wrath was censored by some people. was because it would have been anti-business as well. Steinbeck, the closet commie. Yeah. Which, I mean, he was, he had socialist sympathies. Yeah. His politics. And it, that's, that's something to note at the time in the 1940s and 50s. Like when East of Eden was published, that would have been a controversial stance to have. That would have been when the Red Scare was happening. Sure. So yeah, he, he ended up, I'm pretty sure he ended up on some lists. Or if he didn't, he came close to it. Mm-hmm. No, makes sense. So, yeah. And he, he took political stances. He didn't really see himself as an overtly political figure, but he definitely took political stances on things. And Graves of Wrath is about as baldly political as you get, if I'm remembering it correctly. Yeah, it's pretty political, but like um, he was very careful to present himself as not an overtly political figure. Right. Someone who was not deeply into politics politics or invested in politics per se. He was invested in people is how I think he would have seen it. Mm -hmm. He was not like Yates. Yates actually became a senator in Ireland. It was crazy. But yeah. Did you look up his... uh, Nobel Prize speech. Yeah, it's pretty goofy. It's pretty boring. It's what you'd expect given. Yeah, well, then never mind. I'll just read the ending here. Fearful and unprepared, we have assumed lordship over the life or death of the whole world, of all living things. The danger and the glory and the choice rest finally in man. The test of his perfectibility is at hand. Having taken godlike power, we must seek in ourselves for the responsibility and the wisdom we once prayed some deity might have. Man himself has become our greatest hazard and our only hope. So that today, St. John the Apostle may well be paraphrased. In the end is the word, and the word is man, and the word is with men. Okay, that was definitely not worth it. Um, <laughs> that was purple. Uh, that was purple. If people were wondering what we meant by purple, there's the purple. 
So, like I said, he's not really known for being overtly political. But early in his career, he joined the League of American Writers, which was a communist organization. But then later in his career, towards in the 1960s, he had a fairly long life. I don't think I ever gave his dates. He was born in 1902, lived to 1968 for that time period, 66. Fairly long life. He got to live as a Nobel laureate for six years. There you go. And apparently was ashamed of every moment of it because he was so insecure about his writing. But in the late 1960s, he would actually go and he would praise and give a good image of the U.S. in Vietnam and was denounced by the New York Times as being a hypocrite, as betraying his original communist roots. That's a fun thing to watch. That's another trope that's fun to watch among early 20th century guys is a lot of the people that were radicals in the 30s and 40s end up becoming the conservative, the hated conservatives of the 50s and 60s, which is just kind of fun. Yeah. And also, that's just an aspect of modernism in general. That's one thing I didn't mention was that modernism politicized art. A lot of modernists were very political in their intentions with their art. This would have been a different brand than like Hemingway. Hemingway wasn't explicitly political either. Joyce wasn't necessarily either, but you had some guys, like especially the Ezra Pound direction, that would follow his lead that were pretty political and still you would have, would have that today, these overtly political artists who think that art should be about politics and politics should be made into art and it's about performance and all this. That brand does get into the universities as well and is popularized. So a lot of, that's where you get a lot of hipsters who think they're performance artists and are making some sort of statements about gender equality with everything they do. And so you have that in its early roots in the 1920s and stuff and Steinbeck would have been seen as like a poser by those people. Someone who wasn't quite, it's all that. It's like these silly Mensa groups or the whatever, like the 99 club or whatever it is when people who are really proud about their supposed IQ enter these institutions. Sorry for any reader who's in Mensa, but our listener. But that's kind of also what these art groups were too. There are people who say, well, we're smart and we're all going to get together and be Pablo Picasso's lovers. And if I am Someone who can say that I really love and understand Pablo Picasso, that means that I'm part of the intelligentsia, the people who get it in the know. And so it's just another brand of foolishness. Mm-hmm. And so Steinbeck was outside of it and they looked down on him and made him feel insecure about it. Everybody, the booking was written and produced by. Oh. Hey, Jake, go. you're you're still here. I am. Yeah. <laughs> People might have been wondering. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jake's still here. Jake likes to listen. Jake hangs on every word of Brandon's context. True or That's false? True. True. Oh yes. True. <laughs> so true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll be back next week. Oh, we forgot about donor shout outs, but we're running a tight ship today, folks. So we'll be back with even longer, more exciting donor shout outs. Donors can hate me if I had shown up five minutes earlier. Yeah, if Brandon had, had shown time. up just a little bit earlier, maybe we would have time for donors. People that don't like sending through donor shout outs, this is your lucky day, but don't get used to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. We'll be back next week to talk more mice and I dare say men. Both of them. Bye. Bye.